It's wonderful to be with you this evening, looking at God's Word. My name is Craig Anderson, uh, and I'm the minister in training here at St. Peter's. And myself and Andy Robertson, who leads our work in Charleston, have been taking us through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this evening we start a new section in the letter. But to help us uh, get our heads into what's going on, we need, to, we need to think Ephesian as we begin. So what was going on? in the church at the time. Well, the place Ephesus, as we've been reminded of in the weeks previously, it was a big city, large trade hub, but overseeing it was two great superpowers, the great power of Rome and the great power of Artemis. Artemis was the Greek god they worshipped there. Now in this great city with these big powers was this small church, a new church, made entirely of new Christians. And they were small, seemingly insignificant in this great city, and opposed, opposed physically, opposed spiritually. And the beginnings of this church are remarkable. Read Acts chapter 19. It's epic. I mean that in the actual sense, not in the teenager's sense. It's truly epic the way it begins. You've got riots starting because idol makers were going out of business. Former members of the occult burning their books. And for the first three chapters of his letter, Paul's been reminding these Christians of who they are in Christ. Reminding them of what the church is. And Paul has led us to some of the highest theological peaks in the New Testament. And now from chapter 4 to the end of the letter, he begins working out some of the practical implications of what we've been gazing at in the opening three chapters we're in chapter 4 this evening. If you've got a Bible, we're on page 1175. And before uh, I read it to us, I just want to, want to look at verse 1 here. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I think a more accurate translation is I urge you to walk to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. That's the overarching theme in chapters 4 to 6. But tell us you think, if we're to walk in this calling, then what is the calling? Well, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 10, God has a great plan for the universe. A plan to restore all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And we saw later that this comes as people trust in Christ. When that happens, they are united to him. as a vertical element, united to one another. This walking language comes up earlier in this letter. In chapter 2, we saw that we once walked in trespasses and sins. But we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in those, walk in those good works. See, as, as a church, as people united to Christ, as people united to one another, we are walking in this new trajectory, this new direction, this new way of life. And the first steps Paul gives us are two things which are so intertwined you can barely separate them. They are, they are unity and growth, or unity and maturity. So with all that in mind, let me read uh, chapters 4, sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. And then pray, asking God for his help. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let me pray. Our Father, help us this evening. Without your help, we will not be able to understand your word to us. So tonight we ask that you may incline our hearts to your word here, not to anything the world has to offer us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this evening. Unite our hearts in reverent fear of you, and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 to 6 as we start. This is clicking. Hey, there we go. That definitely was not me. First off, from 1 to 6, let's think about this idea of maintaining the unity of who we are in Christ. Unity and union has been a big thing in the letter. Hopefully we've been picking that up as we go through our union with Christ, our union with one another. And again in verse 3, it crops up again. This unity described here isn't the unity of, of churches together sort of thing. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's the unity within the local church. In the Bible, the church is it's always talking about the people. It's not talking about an, an institution like the Free Church of Scotland, which we are part of. It's not talking about a building like the one we're sitting in now. The church is always the people. And Paul gives us, us, us building blocks, if you will, in verse 2 for Christian unity. And notice here they aren't to do with theological unity, but rather relational unity. See, Paul is helping these, these Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, these ones opposed people, live out and practice who they are in Christ. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Let's know what Paul means from these words here. The words we often 
say a lot, but perhaps you haven't really grasped them. What, what is humility? Well, humility is not being shy or quiet. It can often be confused with that, but that's not what humility is. Humility looks like saying to yourself, I will forego what I want. I will forego what I prefer so the other person can have it, so that they can do it instead of me. I think C.S. Lewis's definition of humility is, is the most helpful. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Well, what gentleness, well, it doesn't mean being a pushover. Being gentle means being meek. It means dealing not harshly, but gently with people. It looks like not, not demanding things from people. It looks like not, not demeaning people coming alongside them, encouraging them with the gospel. And these two, humility and, and gentleness, they're the, the one buttress, so to speak, of supporting this unity. And then there's this other one here, being patient, bearing with one another in love. What does that look like? Well, for an analogy, every parent or anyone who's worked with children at some point, there's a child crying and they just wish this child would shut up and stop crying. I'm sure not the only parent who's thought that, but sometimes a child cries and you go, why are you crying? What's wrong with you? But then you remember that they're a baby. They haven't learned to communicate any other way. They don't know any better. So you learn to be patient with them. Patience recognizes it's the same spiritually. It takes time. Patience means that sometimes we're like the child, confused, unsure of what's happening. And so we must trust God's timing, trust his agenda. But patience worked out looks like bearing with one another. Now, there could be people who you've asked, asked them to do something, and they keep forgetting about their commitments. Perhaps they, they keep dropping out last minute with things. Perhaps they act as, as, if, as if it doesn't matter. You need to bear with them. Yes, a conversation has to happen. One full of humility, one full of gentleness. We need to bear with one another. Given the benefit of the doubt that we hope people would give us. Notice all this is done in love. It's a thing which ties them all together. You could do all these things and do them, begr- and do them begrudgingly. It's a very different thing to do them out of love. And I read this description here of how Paul calls this church to look like, and it sounds beautiful. And part of what makes it so beautiful is because Jesus displayed these perfectly. And he still treats us with these things, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. Sounds actually, as we, as we grow in these areas, we actually grow and become more like Jesus. But imagine churches didn't do these things. Imagine the bickering, the power plays, the pettiness, the grudges. That sort of church looks like it's doing the opposite of God's unifying plan. In one sense, it is doing the opposite because it's looking less and less like Jesus. Imagine if there's someone recording all that we did. Imagine someone was recording all that we did today, all that we said 
to each other during the week. All we thought about one another after this morning's service. I wonder how we would fare. Would we look like the church which is uh, all about unity? About God's unifying plan? Or one which is doing the opposite and working against his unifying plan? See, having these building blocks, it's not easy, is it? It's not something you, you achieve and it's a tick box, that's you done, that's you reach unity. But Paul says in verse 3, make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to maintain unity. See, we are called to walk in unity. And verse 2 is a heavy thing, isn't it? But verse 3, we're called to, work in, to walk in unity, but underpinning that, our unity is enabled by, our unity is established by the Holy Spirit. See, don't miss what Paul's saying here in verse 3, otherwise verse 2 seems like an awful burden. Do you notice Paul isn't talking about striving to achieve unity? He's not talking about creating unity, but instead maintaining unity. His logic is, in Christ you are united, so live united. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what's that bond? What's Christ? Paul, picking up on what he's already said in the first chapters, he mentions this in chapter 2. Christ, who is our peace, who has united all Christians to one another, who through him all Christians have access to the Father by one Spirit. In this bond, in this Christ, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Just think about the things in your life which you have to maintain. You don't maintain things you don't have yet, do you? You maintain things which you already have. Perhaps a car, computer software, a home, a garden. These things all need maintained. The car needs refueled. The computer needs software updates, like every time you turn it on. The home needs ordered. The garden needs tidied. But it's not, it's not passive, is it? You're actively having to maintain these things. And it's not glamorous work either, is it? But it's essential we do those things. It's essential those things don't function like they should. They don't reflect what they were designed to do. See, this is why Paul goes on to talk about the Trinity from verse 4. Have a look at verse 4 down to verse 6. He wants us to see that our life, our unity, is a reflection of something much, much greater. Notice in verse 4, Paul says, there's one body, that's the church, but it's the creation and dwelling place of one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. We have one calling, one hope of our calling. But that calling is the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit by which we are incorporated together into the body of Christ. We have, Paul says, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are told is the object of our one faith. All of this from chapter 2. And the great sign of our communion with him, our communion with the Lord, is our one baptism. We have one God, who is the father of all believers, making us one family adopted into his household. There's one spirit, one Lord, one father underpinning, giving shape to this unity, the shape of the unity of the church and our shared Christian experience. We see in these verses that, that our unity is deeply rooted in, 
It's deeply reliant upon and it's deeply reflecting or triune God's unity. See, he is three and yet one. We as a church are many and yet one. See, what, what enables Paul to talk about this unity we have in Christ and the implications of it is his understanding that what we believe about God, chapters 1 to 3, changes how we live, chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians. And the thing is, God gives us the gifts to equip us to do what we need to do this. He gives the the gifts we need, which is the preaching and teaching of the Bible and one another. Have a look at verses 7 to 13 in Ephesians. Have a look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. If you're here and you think you have nothing to offer at St. Peter's, let verse 7 encourage you. To each one of us, to all of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Paul isn't talking about here about being, being saved by grace. but Instead, he's talking about the subsequent lavish grace that Christ pours out on his church. He gives us gifts of service as Christ has distributed them. And these gifts aren't, aren't abilities, but they're ministries, they're service. So not only are we free to serve, as we heard about in our morning services a few weeks ago, but Christ actually enabled us to serve. He's gifted us to serve. We all have something to give. I think this is a wonderful thing. But perhaps you're here and you're thinking, I want to serve, but I just can't serve like I used to be able to. I just don't have the strength I once had. All I can do is pray. Well, don't forget what we saw last week, the second half of chapter three with Andy Robertson. Is that not possibly the greatest gift for the church? To be somebody who prays for it. See, our our unity we have isn't some sort of beige uniformity. But God's given us diverse people. Diverse people, diverse gifts. And actually what we see in this section is that the church will be worse off for us not serving. Because one person can't do it all. And now I'm acutely aware of that at St. Peter's. David can't do it all. And these gifts are all from Christ. All for his work. Sometimes like there's no room for superiority in the church. And there's no room for inferiority either. But Paul's focus here is not on the type of gifts. That's not what he's looking at here. But rather where they come from. That's his focus. That wants to be our focus. Let's follow Paul's logic here as he goes through from verse 8. See, Paul quotes the psalm, Psalm 68, and psalm all about God rescuing Israel from Egypt giving them to the world to display him. And Paul saying the purpose of that psalm was to show how Christ himself would lead his people out of death into life in the wake of his salvation. Think of verses 8 to 10 like this. Christ is here. Sorry, I'm an engineer. I love graphs. Christ is here. He comes down as a man, lives, crucified, buried. Three days later, he's risen from the dead, 
ascends into heaven, and he's now higher, much higher than he was before. If that's what Christ does, if that's his shape, then what about us? How do we factor in? How does the church factor in? How is this helping the small Ephesian church? Because Christ is the victorious king. He is the one who ascends up and goes on ahead of us, unstoppable in his work. He is the glorious one, and we follow in his wake behind him. We are the captives he has rescued, who he sends up into the right hand of the Father. And as he goes ahead, he gives gifts to the church. Have a look at verse 11, what they are. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The king of kings, the one who equips, he himself gives. He gives the apostles and the prophets. That's, that's Paul's shorthand for the Bible. Their work is done. We have the Bible. We no longer have apostles and prophets. He gives evangelists. Really interesting to look at this, but I won't go into it now. But this word evangelist, it's people who, who give the apostolic message of the gospel. They basically preach the gospel. They themselves aren't apostles. And then there's the pastor and teacher, one office really, the pastor, teacher, shepherd, teacher. And notice in this list, in verse 11, all these gifts given by Christ to the church for our unity, what's common between them? Well, they're all word-based. They're all word-based ministries. And these gifts are people. It's speaking about David. It's speaking about the elders in the church, the people who care for the local congregation and preach and teach the Bible to it. See, the strategy of the risen and ruling Christ to help us maintain the unity we have and to help us grow is by deploying men of God equipped to preach and teach the word of God to the people of God to do the work of God. See, don't miss where all this came from. Christ himself gave a personal love gift for his bride. But look at what the job of David and the elders is in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Bible teachers are given so the reign of Christ can be known through his word. So we can be prepared for service to one another. Built up uh, to help one another. What about the Sunday school teachers? What about them? Aren't they teaching the word of God? How does that fit in to all of this? Well, yes, they are teaching the word of God. But they are unable to do so by the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I think it's wonderful that, that, that we've got an evening service. It's great that St. Peter's, you can come to a morning service or an evening service or both. Where there's midweek fellowship groups in the evenings at lunchtimes as well. You can subscribe to the podcast and have, your, have the sermon sent directly to your phone. You can listen to the whole services online. Loads of opportunities to be equipped by the preaching and teaching of the word of God. On Monday mornings, myself and Andy and John and some others have uh, a meeting, which, which, which some have called the ministry team meeting. And I get it, it makes sense. But actually, verse 12 tells us that the ministry team of St. Peter's isn't us, but it's everyone. We are all the ministry team of St. Peter's. 
And to help us grasp this, someone, someone once described the church as often acting like a bus or like an orchestra. Let me explain what I mean by that. Well, in a bus, think, think what happens. Everyone comes onto the bus, they, they sit there, perhaps some sit in the row and they don't want others to talk to them. Some people always sit in the same seat and get annoyed when people sit there. Some people love chatting to the person next in the whole journey. And who's the one driving? It's the minister. The people in the seats, they, they appreciate him driving, but they aren't the ones doing the work. He's the one doing the work. Of course, from that analogy, that's not how a church is supposed to function. Verse 11 to 13 describes something far more wonderful, something much more like an orchestra. Think of it this way. The preacher is the conductor standing in front of the orchestra, and the score he is reading from is the word of God. And everyone is sitting with their own God-given instrument, their own God-given area of service in the church. And as the preacher reads the scripture, interprets, conducts, and enables each instrument to do their part, it creates a beautiful masterpiece. I was in the school orchestra, and one of my friends played the trombone, essential instrument on its own, no offense to a trombone player, not the most exciting. But part of everything else, well, it adds to something which is the most exciting thing to listen to. Do you see what we're getting at here from the text? That the conductor, the preacher's work, is primarily in preaching and teaching the Bible. It's the body of the church who, through that preaching and teaching, are the ones who then make the music. The ones who are then serving the body. But just because things don't perhaps come to us straight away or perhaps are a bit hard for us or perhaps you aren't as gifted as other people perhaps doesn't mean that that's not the area Christ has gifted you in. Think of the men who preach here. Some are better than others. And yet I guarantee not one woke up one day and could preach as well as they could now. Everyone who preaches here has to work hard at it. And still work hard, work hard at understanding the content of the passage, at how to communicate the passage clearly. And it's the same in all areas of service. It's not as if you get zapped, poof, and then suddenly you're amazing at it. It takes time to work at. See, verses 11 to 13 remind us that there's no place to be a consumer. I just come for the teaching. There's no room for that here. But instead it causes something far more beautiful. Not to be a consumer, but to contribute, to build up the body of Christ. See, spiritual growth, it's all about the corporate family. The individual thinks only of themselves, of me and my growth. Well, that's the immature Christian. But the mature Christian sees that growth is about growing up the whole body, from the youngest right to the oldest. And this unity Jesus has given us, he wants us to see it grow This happens as people understand God's word, as the minds are renewed. Remember last Sunday night when we uh, heard from Andy from Ephesians 3 that we are to pray to the Father for the Spirit to help us to comprehend the love of Christ. Why? Chapter 3, verse 19, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Notice the end of verse 13 in chapter 4. Same phrase again, until we all attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means that we do these things until we become exactly like Jesus. 
This comes through prayer for comprehending the love of Christ in chapter 3. And chapter 4 comes through serving like Christ, which is enabled by understanding the word of God, which is how we know the love of Christ. See, unity and maturity are so interconnected. In other words, you haven't grown in Christian maturity, however profound your knowledge of Scripture, no matter how deep your theological awareness may be. You've not grown in maturity until you've grown in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. We are to maintain the unity of who we are in Christ by being equipped with the gifts from Christ so that we will grow into Christ. When we read the Gospels and we, and we see the life of Jesus, he was never unsure of what he believed. He was never unsure on what it looked like to obey the Father. He wasn't childish in his, act, in his actions or his thoughts. He was never tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunningness and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. These words simply are not true of Jesus. But just notice the language that Paul uses here in verse 14. Cunning, craftiness, deceitful scheming. These aren't things that, that are easy to spot, are they? Otherwise, they couldn't be cunning and crafty, could they? Because we are to grow into Christ, this means that especially those who are teaching must be especially on their guard. Guarding the flock, watching their own life and doctrine. Because we all have gifts as Christ has given us Bible teachers to equip the church for the ministry of building up, up the body of Christ. Who are we listening to? What is the, quote, Bible teaching that's taking priority in your life? Are you perhaps being blown around without realizing it? Having been won over by something crafty, deceitful? See, for Paul, right thinking, getting a doctrine right, and Christian maturity only fit together as cause and effect when knowledge and understanding is married together in love. Hence why he says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. What happens when we do that? The body begins to grow as each part is knit together, as each part does its work. And as this happens, the body builds itself in love and up into Christ. This is the end goal of what Paul's talking about here. We see the almighty ruling and reigning Jesus of chapters 1 to 3. And we see in our section this evening that he has gifted us to serve. He's enabled us to grow together. And he's the one who enables it by the preaching and teaching of his word. See, Jesus is the origin of everything. He is the destination of everything. It's him that we grow into as we maintain the unity we have. So that means that we can't neglect our ministry. Don't let others get exhausted and do it for you. Or don't yourself become exhausted because you're doing somebody else's work. See, imagine if the queen sent you a letter in the post asking you to do something. I thought that'd be wonderful. Dear Craig, please come and do whatever. But here we've got the king of kings. He's given us enabled us, equipped us to do service for him. Why would you let somebody else do that for you? 
It's a gift from him to you. See, Ephesians 4 to 6 may all be the practical applications. It'd be a horrible sermon series, wouldn't it, on its own? Because we need chapters 1 to 3 to be the foundation of it. But make no mistake, all that we are called to do for Jesus, we, we do because of who we are in Jesus, and we are enabled to do it by Jesus. It's all about Jesus, everything. And with that in mind, let us pray. Our Father, it's an amazing thing that we can come to you in prayer because the Lord Jesus sits at your right hand and he has risen us to you. Lord Jesus, it's amazing that you have given us acts of service to do for you, for building up one another. And so as you lay down your life for us, so you call us to lay down what we want in service of one another. It's an amazing privilege to be part of your body. May this church, all the people in it, be a place which is known for their patience with one another, for our humility, for our gentleness, that we bear with one another in the bonds of peace. Help us be people who love to, to lay down what is rightfully ours for the benefit of the other, to say, no, I won't have, so that you can have. Guard all of those who preach and teach your word, we ask. Help them to be good preachers and teachers of your word and help all of us to be good listeners and doers of your word so that we, we may grow in the love and knowledge of Christ and seek to speak truth and love to one another and build one another up and into him. Our Father, it's in the name of Christ our King we pray these things. Amen. I'm going to end with a song together singing the song.